Hey, and welcome to the Sanity Sessions, Exploring Mental Illness and Maladaptations. I'm your host, Clint Sabom, and my guest today is Mike Leary. He is a practicing psychotherapist, and he's going to talk all about dependent personality disorder. Dependent personality disorder is just not something that you find a lot of content for out there on the web, and so we are bringing you some. And it's a really great episode. I hope you enjoy. And as some of you might have noticed that listen regularly, um, I've kind of switched this to releasing a new episode once every other week. Um, Doing one a week was seeming a little too ambitious, at least for now. So it's going to be every other Tuesday we're going to be doing new episodes. And uh, again... Thanks for listening. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Mike Leary, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. You want to give a little bit about your background to listeners that may not be familiar with you? Well, I came, uh, I came to psychology in a roundabout way, but... Um, this is what I've said is my fifth career. And uh, um, what I recognize now is I was counseling people in high school. I was counseling in the army. I was counseling when I worked at Boeing up in Seattle. I was counseling when I was a hippie. And then I started getting paid for it as a parole officer and eventually uh, got into private practice. So it's it's been something I've been doing a long time. I just didn't recognize it uh, as a career choice until uh, about halfway through uh, when I went back to college. Great. And we um, are going to touch on and talk about, I guess, dependent personality disorder, which is a disorder that I don't see a whole lot of information about. So I guess if you could give a little bit of an introduction of the symptoms and how that presents and what what the deal is with that. Well, uh, personality disorder just in themselves, um, typically there are uh, some people like to say you're born with them, but they're born you're born with predispositions to certain kinds of, of uh, issues. And what happens then it's the nurturing of parents, that uh, either increase or decrease one of them. And, and so we look at the personality disorders as adaptive, that that child adapted to the dynamics it found itself. And so uh, depending on a number of factors, then people drop into um, one of the clusters and there's, there's uh, A, B, and C clusters, and this is in the C group that have to do with anxiety. Um, because another one is avoidant and borderline personalities, they kind of fit in this, this same thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what, um, what does dependent personality disorder have as symptoms? What is, well, people don't like to be alone, you know, um, and they, they, uh, they have a fear of abandonment or, um, they can be overly sensitive criticism. Uh, some of them, some people get real pessimistic um, about things because nothing works the way it's supposed to, and they're they're always uh, feeling like they're left out. Now the irony is, is <laughs> we see uh, an interesting phenomenon where some uh, kids that when they grow up they learn to um, where they're dependent really, but they learn to control the heck out of uh, the people around them. And uh, little children, of course, can learn to do it by crying. Um, but there's other kinds of ways that kids uh, pick it up and they can use guilt trips and, and other techniques to, uh, to basically make sure they get their way and that nobody gives them an anxiety feeling. Yeah, so dependent people have a difficult time uh, weaving the nest, weaving their parents sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and when they do, uh, what we see as a phenomena is a lot of times they'll pick up a spouse that will act in place of the parent 
and uh, and so then we can see dynamics going on uh, with some of that. Um, one of the big markers, of course, that uh, is called codependency, and uh, and that was broken out with the uh, uh, addictions groups, in which they found that that person was enabling the the user. Um, and doing that because they were afraid of, of being abandoned again or left. And so they catered to them. And that just that keeps feeding the, the loop. So dependent personality disorder folks are very good at finding enablers in a way. No, they well, no, they are the enablers. Oh, okay. I gotcha. So th they would be a caretaker of somebody with issue. Could you? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They they'll have a uh, a lot of times they'll find somebody who's narcissistic, or they'll find somebody who is controlling. Um, you know that they they become substitutes for um, that particular person's uh, uh, parents, and they want to continue the same. A familiar dynamic that they grew up with, um, but they're coding off, they're they're referencing off of somebody else, and so part of what we look for is how did that develop, and one of the ways uh, um, is that the parents weren't there for them in the way they should be. The kid never got appreciation or approval in that sense. Um, the crude term sometimes is we just say attention. But also sometimes they uh, they had an abusive parent that was really critical and and uh, uh, gave them pain in, in uh, by punishment or uh, withdrawal or uh, guilt or shame or some kind of thing or blame. And so the kid is desperately trying to um, figure out how to make themselves acceptable. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because for some reason I was picturing dependent personality disorder people as having overprotective parents. Uh, so that is one group. That's why it can uh, some of this stuff gets a little uh, um, interesting for me anyway, uh, because there there isn't nice little boxes. I mean, insurance makes us check boxes, um, but the reality is is that people move around in these things. And they're on uh, one of the common terms nowadays is uh, the spectrum. And so you get one extreme to the other. And then and you can also get combinations um, that can happen with them. So um, finding somebody with a strict one thing that that's a bit unusual. Usually we have something sticks out. So we label it that way. But a lot of times there's combinations of things. So yeah, you can have a you can have a, an overindulgent parent, which is and uh, one of the phenomena that I've been seeing in the last uh, twenty years or so. Um, we're seeing overindulgent parents that uh, then the kids don't leave home; they they stay there, and the parents were trying to be nice, but the problem is, is the kid never learns pride. They don't learn I did it myself. They're always referencing off of. Uh, somebody else to know that, to seek that approval. And for what I talk about, about is that that is a clue then that that kid did not get what I call the blessing, um, which is uh, the uh, basically the, the heart or the soul of the child in which they're trying to find out how they fit in the world. Yeah, yeah. And... So, so what exactly do you mean by the overindulgent parent that may may lead to having a child with this disorder? Well, what it's a it's an interesting thing because it, um, those parents a lot of times they're trying to please the child, and that's what they see. They and what we see as psychologists, what we do is look at it and say. Um, you're being needy for the child to approve of you being a good parent rather than the other way around. You're supposed to be giving the child reassurance that they're okay, that, that you know, whatever. 
and that they should not have to earn the parents' love. Yeah, that's interesting. So the, yeah, because consciously from the parent's point of view, they may think they're trying to please the child, but the child feels all these needs like from the parent coming at them. Yeah, because it, it uh, and kids pick it up on that. Kids learn, oh, mom needs my approval. And so mm-hmm. some kids, it just leaves them insecure, where other kids learn, oh, I can control this. And children in particular, once they have control, they don't like giving it up. <laughs> they're gonna, they're going to uh, work it to get their needs met. But it has to do with performing, and if a kid has to perform in order to get acceptance, um, that's one angle of it. But the other one then is that the parents are performing to get the kids' approval. So it sets up this uh, perversion that, uh, you know, for. From our standpoint, we don't see it as having good outcomes. Yeah, and as far as getting control, how would they? How would the? How do kids learn to control this? Well, they learn. I mean, uh, uh, most people know that when a kid cries, I talk about it. <laughs> um, a child's first weapon is their crying. <laughs> you know, they they learn to use it, and I don't mean that in a in a bad way, it's the only tool they got, right? So, and they learn that things happen when they cry. Now that is ingrained in, in uh, creatures. We see a version of that, of course, with animals, that when they're, uh, when they're in a bind or they, something, they can't find them, they, they cry and parents are tuned to that. And that frequency, there's uh, some interesting research on the frequent, the, the tone of crying in, in children and how that really punches our buttons as adults. And it's that it's it's a way for them to get their needs met, which is legitimate. Um, I have a, a saying, you don't you can't really spoil a, an infant, a child. It doesn't work that way. But we have some people they really think that um, that kid's getting spoiled. Well you don't really spoil little children. Uh, what happens is eventually, um, you, you're, if you keep just feeding them, you can uh, set up that dynamic. But for the most part, they're just trying to get reassurance that they're acceptable. Right, right. And then so after infancy, what is this control? What, what, what are some of the weapons of choice as the kid gets older? Well, they... <laughs> They learn to use uh, guilt and shame. And part of that is, I mean, I've actually had kids that would say to their parents, I won't love you. <laughs> it's like, oh, we are in trouble now. Um, because that kid has figured out that the parent needs something from them. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a very powerful weapon. To, to oh, yeah. The, the guilt trip from the kid. You're being <laughs> a lousy parent. I'm going to tell people that you're not lovable. Wow. Wow. Ooh. That's 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 some hard fighting there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it works. <laughs> it works. Yeah. Yeah. I should have thought of that when I was a kid. No, 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 no. And I don't know about you, I'm a military brat, and so uh, it definitely would not work on my folks. Okay, yeah, yeah, I could see it backfiring, you're right, exactly, backfiring, even making it worse, yeah, Uh, on some parents, sure. So, um, now is is this kind of development um similar to the other cluster c developments to well there's different yeah um most of them have to do with not getting a need met in some way and then um and then how the child adapts and some of them um have a a bigger uh, biological element about them uh than other ones do and these tend to have uh, uh, little, but we can typically identify the dynamic. See, every kid that comes in a family has got, got critical things. One of them is the first, they have to belong to the family they find themselves. And so it, it's a very interesting phenomena to see 
um, if I'm dealing with a 14 member family, you can see those patterns come in because the, the first is to belong to that family. The second one is you have to be an individual, so you have to be different than any kid in front of you. And so that's where there's some patterns that we see happening. And usually with the age difference and, and the number, once you get around the sixth or seventh kid, sometimes you can see the dynamic start again. Now, in a cruder sense, we see the firstborn child always gets the pick because children literally see their parents as God. And I just say parent God because everything they are, the way that your parents look at you, talk to you, treat you, tell you who you are for, for children. So consequently, that kid is looking at that parent and having two parents, a mom and dad, they look and the firstborn gets to kind of pick the God they want to model after. So that gets an interesting thing. And they usually get the noisier or the stronger or that kind of thing. That firstborn tends to be the responsible kid in the, in the family. The secondborn can't pick that one because their sibling did. So they got to pick the second one. So they tend to get that one. And sometimes it gets an interesting thing when they're cross-gender. We see pressures with that on some real interesting levels sometimes. But it's there. So then the next kid, the third born, there's, an, there's a phenomena we call the baby. So those are the fee, three favored slots, first born, second born, baby. And where it really starts to shift is when the fourth kid shows up because that baby gets bumped out of their slot and the new baby, the fourth one, picks it up. And so statistically, what's interesting is that third child becomes the lost child in, in the vernacular. And a lot of times they don't know where they belong. They don't know where they fit. They don't know, you know, they may try a lot of things. There's a, a, an interesting dynamic that ends up happening because they, they lost their, their position. Make sense? It does, yes. So um, as far as how this relates to maybe, say, borderline versus dependent, well, a borderline, uh, uh, a borderline has an interesting phenomenon. A borderline is abandoned by uh, typically both parents. And so they learn to be very, very manipulative typically, but they've got a, a terrible uh, victim script. And, uh, and there usually is, not always, but there usually is a bit of a histrionic element about it. And so they can get really tense. And they set themselves up, uh, the way I talk about it is, uh, uh, what's more familiar, you know, uh, or uh, not, not familiar, what's more secure, what you know or don't know. And of course, it's what's familiar. And what's familiar is feeling like a loss. So what a borderline does, uh, without typically being conscious of it, is they, they select, choose, um, do things that will end up creating an, another victim in them. And everybody around them can look at them. They're rolling their eyes. What are you doing? I have to do this. And it's like, there it goes. And of course it happens and they're left out again. So that's the, the borderlines tend to be more on the intense element of it. We're dependent. Uh, sometimes they're quiet, they're uh, reserved. Um, they're, you know, they just try to be, uh, not looked at, not, uh, identified. Um, so that's the, that's the classic element about it. But I look at, uh, I look at these things again as, as what is, how did they develop? And that kid that we were, that there are the things that I talk about as the blessing. And the blessing is what we need from our parent gods. And the first one that we see is that you're safe. That where you are is good. And when we have research now where we've seen some situations where some infants did not get that sense of being safe and they get a, a phenomenon we call detachment disorder, 
And I've had a few patients with that. And it's, it's, it's really sad. Uh, the next one is that you're not alone. So that kid needs to feel like that, they're, that there's somebody there for them and has their back no matter what. The next one is that you're wanted. That you can tell that these people want you. And then they've got to give you a sense that you're unique, that you're special, and that you have purpose on earth. And those kids are like, they start working and you can see it with little kids where they're just ready to go. They're jumping around. I, I just love watching kids when they're even walking and there's a little lump and they'll jump on it, jump off, jump on it, jump off. They just do it. They're just alive and they're feeling it. Da -da 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 -da. And eventually then they have to learn that they have a purpose on earth, that they're here to do something about life in some way. What is your passion? And that means then you get a feeling of belonging. I really do belong here. That has to get in them. And the big one then is you're lovable just the way you are. And we see so many parents that inadvertently and sometimes on purpose tell their kids they have to earn it. They have to do it just right. So we get this huge group of kids who just never feel they're good enough that no matter what they do, they just don't measure up. And a place, of course, we see that incredibly so is in the sports arenas in which they have to win, they have to win, they have to win. And they're addicts about it. So eventually they have to feel their just love for existing, just being, not doing. And when that happens, then we don't get these disorders. But when they do have them, that's part of what I do with therapy and, and use techniques that are, are, uh, uh, that's, uh, are humanistic, as they say. And that is, is to go back and get that ghost child or inner child or whatever they want to call it and, and get that blessing um, instilled in them. And when they do, those people seem to be able to change. Because once they got it, one, they don't have to spend all that time trying to go get approval for wherever and get it because they have it. In addition, the phenomenon is then they don't have to worry about somebody taking it. Nobody's going to be able to, you know, take it away from them because they know that's who they are. So they don't have a loser thing anymore. And that changes, that gives them a platform in which then they can start to take care of the usually adaptive habits that people have learned over years, but they're not fighting themselves at that point. And so that makes it a lot easier. Is that making sense for you? Yeah, it is making sense for me. I'm wondering if you, when you see people that have a dependent personality, which, which ones of the blessings they didn't get? Well, usually they're, they're, uh, they're insecure because somehow there's this thing that they didn't measure up to. And so a lot of them are in that, that thing of, of trying to uh, please their parent to, um, to make them feel okay. And of course the, the uh, perversion of that are the parents that have inverted it. And those kids, um, uh, it's, it's that thing about not having pride. You know, to have pride, you have to do it myself. I have to earn it myself. I have to have that thing. And when I talk about uh, faith, that the real faith is having faith that you will handle whatever comes your way. And that has to start with the way that the kids are treated when they're growing up. If their parent gods believe in them and they're saying, you can handle it. It's just a mistake. Oh, it was just that time to really identify that it's a journey. It's not who they are. And separating out what they do from who they are is really, really important for children. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, handling the faith that you can handle whatever comes your way, that's, I mean, that's kind of a tall order for adults, I think. Well, you're right, because I... I end up having it 
um, you know, I have a, a very strong spiritual link, and uh, I've been through, I've been in major religions, I've been excommunicated from religions, I have made the tour with different cults, and and cut through all of them, and look for the similarities, and so waiting for a God to magically make a miracle just for you, because you've kissed his toe, is a crude way of saying, I'm, you're waiting for magic, and it's like, it doesn't work that way. That it's like, you're the one that's got to handle your pain, your stuff, and believing in yourself, I will handle it. If there's any way that I can do something, I'm going to. That's you believing in yourself. And we all have to get in predicaments in which that gets proven to us. And some of what we see with dependent, that they, they wait. They're waiting for somebody to come and rescue them, make their life better, fix it, uh, tell somebody what they need to do. Um, it's a trap, and, and, uh, and that's the dependent. I'm referencing externally for my sense of okay. I have faith that they will take care of me. I don't have faith that I will take care of me. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about avoidant? How does this differ from avoidant? Well, avoidant is imagining that there's a cliff, you know, that there is some disaster that will happen and and that they're inadequate. And so uh, I, I actually have a little uh, in my office, I have a cookie jar somebody gave me and it's it's a shark. And so when people are, in, you know, insinuating it, I will lift the lid and it makes Jaws music. And those people seem to have the theme music of Jaws in their head and they walk around with it all the time. And it's pretty sad, but it's like Jaws can bite them at any time. They don't know. Uh-huh. And the Jaws can be every any relationship, any kind of relationship. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, sometimes it slips into that paranoia thing. And that's where you can have uh, people checking up. You know, are you messing around on me with their spouse? Can I see your phone? They, you know, where did you go? And there's all this whole thing. It's like, I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be abandoned. And then they just finagle it until the person gets, you know, their, their spouse or partner gets fed up with it. And it's like, I don't want to live like that. So back to dependent personality, it, it sounds like, though, a tough task in getting the dependent personality to believe they can handle whatever comes their way. Yeah, uh, my machine just did something, so I'm going to I'm having to plug this in for a second. And uh, I'm surprised I haven't lost you. So we'll. See. Oh, OK. You know, I can hear you fine. Okay, well, let, let's just keep going then. Sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, ask your question again, please. Well, with I'm you know curious to hear more about the therapeutic process of healing for somebody that has dependent personality disorder. Okay, so for me, I see it as as a core issue is that you know they didn't uh, they didn't uh get that blessing and so then what i'll do is uh because that inner child or ghost child it it doesn't learn by talking we get a number of therapies seem to try to talk themselves into being good or being better and i see that work for a little bit of time but as soon as they get under pressure bam they're back doing the familiar thing because underneath of it is insecurity so my target then is to is to get to the heart and not your intellect nor your just raw emotions and that is how can we get that the the sequence of the blessing that is supposed to happen and for that i have i do uh, uh hypnotic stuff and one of them is is, is uh not big trance i don't I don't see that as necessary. Um, 
in this. And so consequently, I'll have them do guided imagery with a, a, a place of what I talk about as their safe house. So we create um, some place they've been where they can feel safe and they go there and we, we set up the house, we set up the location, we set up everything until that is familiar. They, they can go there in their mind and relax. They can meditate, prayer, whatever. And once that's stable, then we will, I have them go on a trail somewhere and eventually they find that child. And usually the child is anywhere from uh, around three or four uh, up to about seven or eight. Um, for most people, once in a while, it's a little older, sometimes it's younger. But um, they will then take that child and then they will go into the house, have a room set up for that child so that the child is completely um, immersed in a room that that they would love. And usually after being familiar with it, then they, um, uh, I have them bring in a pet so that it can keep them company. I have them name the pet and it's, uh, I would say 98% of the time when I ask them to name the pet, they immediately, the kid, that child immediately tells them what the name of that animal is. Like it was somehow a given. And I have them there, there's a statement that when the child is in that safe house, they never ever have to worry about doing something wrong, making a mistake, having anything bad. And they, uh, most people are like, uh, and I can tell, I say, they don't believe you. No, no, they don't believe you. Uh, so I'll have them, uh, uh, make a birthday cake and, and, uh, dump it on the floor <laughs> and even step on it. And I'll, and I'll ask them, what's the kid doing now? And some kids are just stunned. Other ones start crying and other ones just laugh. I mean, I never know what the reaction would be. And then I have them snap their fingers and it immediately disappears. It's all clean, like it was never there. And then they reassure the child, you see, this is kind of a magic place and you never have to worry about making a mistake. And that changes things dramatically, typically. Sometimes there's a couple other pieces we gotta put in, but for the most part, they feel secure. It's like, oh, I don't have to worry. And then we reassure them that they can live in that safe house, they can play outside. Some people make, uh, uh, outbuildings with horses or playground equipment or whatever. But the kid's whole thing is just to be safe there and never alone. And that makes a difference. So that's the part that the adult can give that inner child. But they can't give them the other parts. Because the other parts, were, remember, supposed to come from a God figure. And so that's where I will have them, uh, we will, uh, when they're ready, then we go um, on a trail to some kind of place where they have a, um, an outlook where they can see nature in its wonder. Sometimes that's the ocean. Sometimes that's the uh, mountains. Sometimes it's a lake. And I had one gal in the middle of the sun. Uh, she had horrible things happen and that was the safest place that she could be. So once that's established, then we go to that place and then I have them go and, and connect with their higher power. And when they connect with their higher power, then I have that higher power. They ask the higher power for the other parts of the blessing of uniqueness and purpose and belonging and lovability. Those are given by their um, God figure whatever that happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, it changes everything. I mean, for most people, um, I got a contract with uh, the local school system for obese people. So I had 70 obese people 
um, that were uh, probably uh, almost half of them were black women. Um, uh, two men is all that were in it. Um, these are people that were very, you know, they're all uh, teachers uh, or administrators. So uh, all of them, you know, were college educated, smart people. And most of them had gone through at least three, if not six weight loss programs and, and failed. And the other psychologists in town wanted to test them. And my wife and I, who's, she's a psychologist also in that. And, and it's, uh, we had, you know, that seemed ridiculous. These people have, have, you know, if it was an intelligence issue, they would have done it. And so my wife is a really good interviewer. And so uh, she, um, they basically gave us three hours to sort them into a, a program. There were three different programs for uh, them to go into. And we decided to do something um, unusual in that sense to sort it. And so my wife interviewed them. And in the interview, she found out where the bugaboo was when they were kids, you know, identified kind of where the, the thing was. And then not all of them, but uh, most of them, I did this particular kind of safe house thing. And uh, it was an interesting phenomenon. Now, I, of those uh, black women, they were they were so interesting, so um, smart, so neat in their own way. And most of them were what you would call Southern Baptist in their upbringing and belonging and stuff. But when I look at the 70 people and we go meet God, their higher power, how many do you think saw God as a man in robes? And how many do you think saw Jesus as their God figure who would talk to that child? Yeah, most of them saw Jesus. Two people out of 70 saw God as a man, and three, only three, saw Jesus. Oh, you mean they had their own conception, basically. Yeah, but you would think that in the kind of background and training that when they would go there, they would see that fantasy, and that's not what happened. I mean, it mm -hmm. did for for the three, and the in the other two. But <clears throat> excuse me, um, it was not something that ended up showing up as their higher power. That it, uh, most of them, they were um, energy nebulous. Uh, some saw things as cloud or whatever. Some sure. just saw it and and felt it. A few people heard things. Uh, they were just sounds, but. Uh, I found that quite interesting that um, when they finally connected, it wasn't what we would expect. Now, what also was interesting, I did a follow-up a year later, um, and a number of those people never even ended up going to the program, and a whole bunch of them lost over 100 pounds because they were all, they were all like 350 pounds and up, you know. Yeah, no, that's fantastic that those results happened. But that's where, uh, if if they're dependent, they're referencing externally, and they don't believe in themselves. That's the insecurity. So if I can get them to um, to have that faith that they're going to be okay no matter what, that they're linked, then. They're not referencing off of other people. The other thing, uh, which we haven't really mentioned much, is that uh, if you got somebody dependent, uh, they tend to send out a signal, and predators smell it. Mm. They can tell. Um, mm. One of my areas, I was a parole officer uh, for four years, and, and I've been into prisons and jails and all kinds of stuff. Um, and in interviewing some of these guys, they would go to a shopping center and just sit there and look at the way a woman would walk, what she wore, how her hair was. And if they needed confirmation, they just bump her. And the way she responded either confirmed or denied what they, you know, had in mind. 
And of course, they're looking for somebody that's not going to give them a lot of trouble. Right. Someone that's going to yield easily. Yes. And, and, you know, people don't like that idea, but it's true. And, uh, and, and of course we see things that are indicators. I mean, regular people, much less us, but regular people, um, pick up that people are insecure. You know, one of the biggest ones, of course, old style for men is a big comb over, right? You see a guy with this, he's got his hair from his ear and it's all the way across his head and he's got it glued down. It's like, he's, he's uh, insecure. And you see women have different kinds of things. And of course the fat lip deal where they're obviously injected, that's an insecure marker. And so, you know, predators pick up on that and then they, they work it. And of course that, that can be very um, problematic. And the predators in this case would be people that tended towards narcissism or sociopathy. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the, um, the triad, you know, right, right, right. Machiavellianism and sociopaths. So. Yeah, and and that almost makes me feel like depend people with dependent personality would be kind of guilt ridden, like they would end up feeling things were their fault a lot of times. Well, then that's sometimes uh, that's the code is like you know you made you know look what you made me do. That's a horrible thing. Um, when I I taught for uh, sixteen years at the university, and uh, and I would do this class, and it was. Uh, uh, a whole thing on uh, choosing, you know, to really take back control and look what you made me do is a, is a, a, a phrase that's most of us got from our parents at some point, And it's not true. And, uh, and it goes to things that you make me happy. And it's like, it's a romantic notion, but it's not true. Every woman Every guy who is screwed up and given a woman flowers to say, I'm sorry. And as they say, a rose says, I love you. And 12 of them say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, and she's like, you think this is rose? <clears throat> and she dumps them in the trash because it's like, oh, I was trying to make you happy. Well, it doesn't work that way. People are happy when they decide to be happy. Now, you would try to influence that. If you know the person, you can influence it. But I do the same thing. We flip it over, and it's like, you make me mad. Well, that's not true. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, I was talking to Richard Dreyfus uh, at a film festival a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, I use some of your movies for uh, therapy. And he says, let me guess, what about Bob? And I, I laughed. I said, yeah, that's with Bill Murray. I said, no, the one, the one I really uh, like is I use uh, Tin Men. And he was puzzled. Tin Men? I said, yeah, that's where you and Danny DeVito uh, are selling tin siding in the, in the 50s. And the show you make it, uh, you guys go get Cadillacs. And you didn't know you were in the same business, but you get your new Cadillac, drive out in the street and run right into his Cadillac. And then you guys start into the thing of smashing each other's car. And finally, you decide to upgrade this thing and you find out that DeVito's married. And so you go to the grocery store where his wife is, accidentally bang her cart and get in a chat with her. And the next thing you know is that you've been able to bet her. And so the shot is out in the, in the, the uh, apartment then. You're out in the hall at the payphone and you call DeVito in the uh, um, pool hall and you say, hey, guess what? I just got finished poking your wife. <laughs> and DeVito says, good. And I hope you guys are happy together. You know, she didn't do that much for me anyway. Clunk. And Dreyfus, of course, is looking at the phone. It's like, well, that didn't, I, he was supposed to make him mad, right? Right. But he didn't. How come? Because you can't make somebody mad. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, but that's a, those are levels of awareness and control that uh, most people have to 
um, have some kind of therapeutic input in order to realize it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that avoidant people and borderline people are also smelled out as targets by predators too? Well, um, it's pretty common for borderlines and narcissists to find each other. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some narcissists like uh, a dependent personality because they can have, as they say, one at home. Um, I've known people that have had actually two families married with kids in the same town. And it was, you know, trying to be okay um, to get value because, uh, uh, you know, uh, the narcissist is empty also, but they have to earn theirs and they're using their intellect to manipulate everything. So that's a little different style with it. And it can get really uh, controlling and brutal at times. Uh, their thing is, is, is uh, they don't like surprises, so they have to control everything. And it's, it's a style, but it's uh, that they feed each other and uh, one's a victim, one's a predator, and that's the way it goes. But they're both users. Mm -hmm. Dependent has a little different angle on it. One thing that occurred to me about dependent, um, you, you know, in the guided imagery, you were mentioning like uh, having a pet there. But I'm almost wondering if in real life, dependents that live alone would do good with a pet. Well, we see that now. Um, all this, uh, there's a big deal about um, the dogs and the cats and the rest of that. Uh, the, and, and of course, uh, one of my things, I had a patient wanted me to uh, um, write a letter for her uh, comfort dog, and I won't do it because that's a therapeutic issue. And you don't do that where you're taking them on airplanes and you're, I can't do anything without it. It's like, no, no, that's feeding the thing that's not uh, getting through it and understanding it. You want to have companions. Last summer, in the middle of this thing, I ended up with a with a hatchling, a duck. It 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 was in the gutter, and the poor thing. I thought he'd be dead by the morning, but I I got him in a big uh, container and and I fed him fish food, and uh, and he got better. And that little duck uh, then, of course, imprinted on me. Um, I think uh, he, he was probably two days old at the most when I found him, and he was, he was almost dead. But he perked up and then um, just really connected. Well, we had this relationship where it was just delightful, and then something happened, and he ended up getting really sick. And he died. Hmm. And I grieve so. That little duck was so wonderful for the misery that was going on last summer. And I posted on my Facebook and all these other people were so. And it's like I it just killed me to have to say he died. He died last night. Mm -hmm. And that it's that that piece of looking for. You know, the connection, the belonging, it's so important. So I'm not, I'm not sure how you're answering this question with dependent people having animals. You're saying yes? Yes. Yes. That it's, it's important. It's, just, it, it's where it becomes the substitute and they can't be without. They can't... Um, They've switched their dependency on such a level that they want everybody else to cater to it. And then we get in trouble. Right. And if you can put that energy into a pet, it's a safer, more manageable way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then we, we see, uh, you know, the hoarding of animals where if one is good, 10 are better, <laughs> you know, the American way. More, more, more. Um, and, uh, you know, having that relationship, particularly with dogs, is that they they just love you to death. Um, uh, 
and uh, you know they're almost masochistic because you you can uh, you can hurt a dog or yell at a dog or do whatever, and then and they'll they'll come back to you. Now, cat, of course, cat's like screw you. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, you do that. You know, you either make it nice for me or I, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> right, right, right. Um. Yeah. Well. Um. Wait, well, why didn't you write your? Why didn't you write the letter for your patient that wanted a letter for a comfort animal? Oh, because she wanted. She was. Uh, she wanted an easy way out. She wanted other people to deal with that, and 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 she would not deal with her dependency for real in therapy. Oh, so she, so, so her, you think for her, the, the pet was just, um, an escape from actually yeah, doing yeah. real work. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I gotcha. I gotcha. But, but, uh, but getting a pet could go healthy alongside doing the work. Oh, I've had people, I've told people to get pets. I've had, you uh -huh. know, to get kinds of things and, um, I mean, I got a guy that uh, he's got a bunch of snakes, you know, and I was like, um, I don't exactly <laughs> snakes are not what you call warm and cuddly, but there's quite a few people that have reptiles and particularly some of the lizards and things. And they're, they're like, good, but no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for being on here today and talking. This has been an interesting conversation, so it's been enjoyable. Thank you. Well, I hope that uh, some of your listeners can, you know, that it's triggered some things in them and that they can, uh, um, you know, start to start to go towards that thing. What what is that part of us that's deep inside? And I, I separate out our thinking with our head, our feelings with our gut and then our truth with our heart. And that that's our link spiritually. That's our link to the other. That's that's a, a different level. And uh, uh, a lot of us are just stuck between the argument in our head about the right thing to do and how I feel. And that's where, depending on the factors, where a lot of people are stuck. And of course, yeah. in, uh, in our world, we use chemical boosters to, um, to either uh, speed up or, or retard one of those things. When I when I want to get going, I use speeders of caffeine or nicotine or something like that. And if I want to slow down, then I use alcohol or marijuana or something like that. Um, and, and so then I start pushing myself around and don't learn how to do it on demand wherever I'm at, that I don't need the chemical. They're just boosters. Mm -hmm.